Today in the Lazy D&D Talk Show, we're going to look at the Tome of Beast Monster Cards Kickstarter going on by Inkwell Ideas. Blades of the Dark now is part of a bundle of holding. You can get a lot of Blades in the Dark material for, for a very reasonable cost. We're going to look at the Monsters Compendium Volume 2 focused on Dragonlance, released by Wizards of the Coast on D&D Beyond. There's a particular article in Arcadia Issue 22 that I wanted to talk about today, Arcadia by, by MCDM. And we're going to do a product spotlight on Raging Swan's Dungeon Dressing for 5e, along with Patreon questions from December. December 2022 Patreon Q&A. I'm Mike Shea, your pal from Sly Flourish, here to talk to you about all things D&D. This show is brought to you by the patrons of Sly Flourish. Patrons of Sly Flourish get access to all kinds of cool exclusive material like the City of Arches sourcebook, exclusive adventures, a dedicated Discord channel, the Patreon monthly Q&A, and all kinds of other stuff. But most of all, they help me put on shows like this to the patrons of Sly Flourish. Thank you so much for your outstanding support. It seems like only recently, we were talking about Tome of Beast 3. It's actually very handy that Tome of Beast 3 has come out, and my friend Joe over at Inkwell Ideas has partnered with Cobalt Press to put out a Kickstarter for the Tome of Beast monster cards. This is something that Inkwell Ideas has been doing now for, I think, all three of the other monster books, and you can actually get all of the cards for these monster books in one Kickstarter. If you're the kind of DM that really feels like the card of a monster is handier than having a book, if it's the kind of thing where you like to have all of your monsters in front of you, if it's the kind of thing you would copy and paste into a different work this is a fantastic kickstarter for you in this kickstarter you can get all 400 plus monsters from the tome of beast 3 in card form uh they have the artwork for the monster on one side they have a stat block for the monster on the other in some cases it's pretty condensed because there's a lot of material for that so i know joe has gone through to kind of condense the text a bit so that it can all fit on these on on these cards he brings up a list of what are the different advantages you have that you can sort the monsters that you just want for that session in front of you you can clip them i really like this idea of if you have your gm screen you can clip the monsters to your gm screen actually in initiative order and have the artwork so the players can see the art of the monster on one side and you can see the stats of the monster on the other really handy good way to track initiative they they have they really look they really look beautiful and good art handful of creatures in the book that don't have art they're adding art for the ones that don't and really handy that you can actually sort them by terrain type so if you have people that are going through a swamp you can get all the swampy ones put them together in a list sort them shuffle them and randomly draw a monster to see what kind of monster they have so if you're really into the cards this is a good way to do it what's interesting is this uh, this kickstarter also has a way for you to buy all of the monsters from all three previous Cobalt Press monster books all four so that's 1600 monsters worth of cards it is not super cheap Right, 60 bucks for the deck, which is about as much as it costs you to get the book, but it includes both the PDF and the printed version of the and the, the deck of it, and it is 432 cards. It is a great big, great big box of cards. And for 90 bucks, you can get all the PDFs, but $225, which is, you know, I know, ain't cheap, but it's four monster books with the monsters, you can get more than 1,600. I think it's probably like on the order, 1,700 or something like that. 1,700, 1,700 monsters in a great big box. They all come in like a slipcase or not slipcase box. They all come in a nice box and you can use it to sort through all of your monsters and find the monsters you want. So for some people who, if you are going to the kind of person who is printing your monster stat blocks out when you're running them, if you're the kind of person that takes the PDF of the book and copies the monster and pastes it into the thing and then prints that out, this might be a better solution for you to, to, to use these cards and to get these cards. So that Kickstarter is going on now. It is a shorter Kickstarter. It has only nine days left to go. I think by the time this video hits YouTube, which is tomorrow, be it seven or eight days left. So definitely check it out. 
out. Joe's a great guy. He's been making these kinds of cards for all kinds of things. I have other, right? I'm here on my desk. Other decks of cards from Inkwell Ideas. Really fantastic stuff. Great way to look at it. Independent producer. Fantastic, fantastic Kickstarter. So you can find a link to the Deck of Beasts 3 Kickstarter down in the show notes below. A while back, I guess it was a year or so ago, I ran Blades in the Dark. I was very interested in running Blades in the Dark, and Blades in the Dark is currently now on the bundle of holding. You can pick up the whole Blades in the Dark pack for like 13 bucks. That includes the Blades in the Dark, Duskwall Heist deck, the Duskwall Street Maps, and the Alone in the Dark solo rules, as well as the Settings Collection, which includes Band of Blades, Scum and Villainy, Hack the Planet, Fistful of Darkness, Glow in the Dark. So lots of different scenarios that you can run for Blades in the Dark. If you were, I was very interested in this because i did not have those other ones bands of blades come and villainy hack the planet fistful of darkness glow in the dark i didn't i didn't have those and i was i knew that those were ones i wanted to take a look at if you are interested in experimenting with or understanding or studying blades in the dark and you think you wanted to look at like what it would be like to do it in a in a grim fantasy setting or in a science fiction setting or anything like that this is a fantastic way to get it the bundles of holding are always really really good deals the threshold price for this is 20 about just under 27 dollars 10 percent of your money is going to the diana jones award for emerging designers that's a really cool 5013c non-for-profit to help up-and-coming game designers and for your 27-ish dollars you're going to get six settings worth of material for blades in the dark so you're getting a significant deal so anyway if you are interested in blades in the dark and you want to get a digital version of the book this is probably the best deal you're going to get on the digital version of the book you can find a link to the blades in the dark bundle of holding in the show notes below 17 days left on that Wizards of the Coast released, along with Dragonlance, which came out. Where's my Dragonlance book? Guess what? Guess what I've got? Guess who joins? Guess who joined me in the in the Sly Flourish archive? Lord Soth. Look at Lord Soth. I got him. I picked him up two days ago, and it's really cool. I'm very, very pleased. Very pleased with my book. So happy. So happy. Lord Soth and I. We're going to go to the park later. I've loved Lord Soth since I was 13. So I got my copy of Dragonlance and also Wizards of the Coast released a free Monstrous Compendium Volume 2. They did this back with Spelljammer as well. The interesting thing is back in the Spelljammer time, they formatted it in a PDF. I think that was right around the time when Wizards of the Coast bought D&D Beyond. Now it looks like they are just putting the monsters in D&D Beyond. There isn't a PDF available of this, but it's free. Are you really going to complain? Hey, where's my free PDF to go along with my free monsters in the D&D Beyond set? What do we expect, right? That's it's gonna be fine. Eleven different monsters that come here in this in this set, and these look like they were monsters that either didn't make their way into the book, monsters that they might have done some design work on the past, but decided not to include. Maybe page space was an issue. Maybe the monsters just didn't really come up in the adventures, but we get them anyway. The monsters range all the way from CR one to CR twenty two, all different kinds. They are definitely focused on dragon lancey sort of monsters we get a dream eater cr7 dream eater which i guess eats dreams i haven't looked too deep into their into their monsters there's a couple of monsters that i took a hard look at and then a few monsters that i didn't it's free i don't have to sell you on this if you're a subscriber to dnd beyond you can go and you can take a look at your monsters and decide it's cool right why not free monsters who doesn't want some free some cool free monsters there were a couple of things i know so ember this is one prepare for a rant prepare for a rant everybody Ember. Ember is a huge dragon. What's interesting is they don't say the age. It used to be like if one were an ancient dragon or an adult dragon or something like this. In this case, I think they just say Ember is a huge dragon. I guess it doesn't matter how old Ember is. But Ember is a CR-22 dragon, legendary dragon, and has right off the bat, like, 
270 hit points at CR 22 feels really low. I remember I was some some folks in Discord were talking about this and like at CR 22, if you're facing like CR 14s or, or level 14 or 15 characters, they could do 270 damage in a round easily. So if you look at a monster like this, you want it to be lasting three rounds. My my general rule of thumb is that hit points of a monster at this CR should probably be 20 times its CR. So in this case, I think it should have like 420 hit points. And again, like what's its max? So max is 20 times 12, 20 times 12, 240 plus 140, 240 plus 140. 380 so if you max embers hit points i think it, it's probably strong and you have permission not only do you have my permission to increase its hit points but jeremy crawford also has been on a show that i used to run saying absolutely you can the range of hit points that's the average are you fighting the average ember or like hardcore ember and hardcore ember turn that dial and give it 380 hit points but i would like i think 440 it would, it would not be out of hand either it's cr22 big dragon right you want the dragon you don't want the dragon to get killed with three smites from a from a paladin Callison's aura at the start of Ember's turn. Ember can force any number of creatures of his choice within 10 feet to make a DC 22 constitution, constitution saving throw. On a failed save, target takes seven fire damage and is frightened of Ember. The frighten isn't bad. The question is, if you're making a bunch of characters at a pretty high level, roll saving throws, and you're only doing seven damage, that doesn't feel like very much to me. I'd boost that hell out of that damage. I'd make that like 30. Like make that like 30 fire damage, seven fire damage. The, the rant is that Ember Shocker isn't, doesn't have enough hit points, isn't doing enough damage. You have heard me on this show before. Talk about not enough hit points, not enough damage. I am sure somebody out there is going to say, according to all of the calculations that you could do through the Dungeon Master's Guide, Ember is actually appropriately leveled for the amount of stuff that it has. Maybe. I still argue, my, my big argument on monster design is that regardless, when you have a creature this high in challenge rating, regardless of all of the other abilities it has, it still needs to do a lot of damage to be a threat. That when you reduce a monster's damage or defenses by, when you reduce a monster's damage or, 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 or hit points, for example, by giving it other defenses, that means it's going to be weaker in those other things. So weak that it doesn't matter that it has those other abilities because it can't do enough damage to matter. So the idea is an example would be hit points when you so legendary resistances, it has five ember has five legendary resistances a day. I can't remember the exact math, but it's like every legendary resistance is like 20 hit points or 40 hit points off of its max hit points. Like you reduce its hit points for every legendary resistance it has. But ember being a focal point of characters attacks needs to have legendary resistance to not suck. So I don't think legendary resistance should have an effect on the monster's CR at all when it's a legendary monster. I think legendary monsters should get that anyway because they're going to be the target of all of the character's wrath and it needs legendary resistance in order to survive. So my argument is, that, and maybe that's why hit points are so low, is because it has so many legendaries. It's also five, why not three? I would give it three. Other dragons have three. I don't know why five is a good deal. Most of, a lot of people I talk to hate legendary resistance anyway. And when you get into five, it's like, well, nothing's gonna land. Three, you at least have to land three save or suck spells and have them make their, have it fail their save before those legendary resistances are burned. There's still a strategy to burning legendary resistances. There isn't if it has five, because it's not gonna last that long anyway. You're just gonna beat it down. So A, 
five legendary resistance is probably too many. And also, it shouldn't lower its hit points to get legendary resistance. And it should do more damage. Calescent Aura. Frighten isn't bad, but Frighten also doesn't tend to affect higher level characters anyway. They have lots and lots of ways to get rid of Fright. So it really doesn't matter. So that, that's a wasted ability. Like we have five lines of text for something that really doesn't do very much. If that did 30 damage, if it was like fireballing every turn on board right boom 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 radiating fire disintegrate any no any like commoners that come by they're just turned to ash seven why are we rolling first of all why do you give me five lines of text one two three six five six lines five lines of text why do you give me five lines of text in this stat block for seven damage at cr 22 and and two are you really going to have me rolling every turn for all the poor bastards so that to see if they take seven damage fireball man and it should be half damage if you fail but seven seven damage is totally that's a useless section it's it's you know the frightening doesn't matter the damage is too low you know if you want my case just boost that boost that damage up those are rookie numbers get those numbers up special equipment at don's magical plate custom force is useful wearing the armor adds his charisma modifier included in the attack descriptions to its ac you could probably take this section and stick that in the lore and and trim up this stat block and just say like ac 20 special equipment right it doesn't matter because all this this whole section is just why this is 20 <laughs> and you already know it's 20 who cares multi-attack makes one bite and two claw attacks uh, the bite is 26 plus 13 fire that's a good respectable bite 39 points of damage on a bite that's really good claws 22 not bad no grapple on this if you look at the dragon the bigger dragons that are in fizz bands they often have a grapple and restrain you could throw that in there if you wanted. Firestorm Breath. Ember exiles rolling flames at Nash 90 foot cone. Creature takes DC 22 deck save. That's really high. On a failed save, takes 56 fire damage and is pushed 30 feet away from Ember and knock prone. That's pretty good. On a save, the creature takes half damage and no other effects. If the creature is reduced to zero by this, the creature immediately dies and the body is reduced to ash. So that last part is, I didn't I didn't know about that. That is really brutal. I don't know if I like that. I'll tell you, the, there's a lot of D&D monsters recently have 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 these instant death effects i was using a spelljammer monster last night in a game and it had an effect where it devoured your brain and it did like 40 damage and if it reduces you to zero your 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 brain is devoured there's something about the instant death on zero there's probably a bunch of like hardcore osr people who are like absolutely breathes you and drops you to zero you die but i could tell you like and i guess at this level that's okay because like you have ways to deal with death but boy, that's pretty rough. The interesting thing is the knock-on prone. I guess there's no good way to combo the, the knock-on prone with the multi-attacks because it doesn't really get multi-attacks as legendaries. Altar shape, it can turn into a vulture or a mage. I guess that's part of the story. Again, we have more story. And I don't know that you need that as an action. It can do that, as, like, again, I mean, and again, I'm picking on a monster they gave us for free and it's not in the book. And if you recall from my spotlight where I went through the Dragonlance book, I actually liked the monsters in the Dragonlance book a lot. So this it's funny that I don't like these. Maybe they didn't go through the maybe they didn't go through the full maybe they didn't go through the full design process for this. Right. Because these monsters feel differently. But again, six lines of text bonus action to turn into a vulture. Guess what I'm not going to be using in combat? I'm not going to have Ember turn into a vulture in the middle of combat. I'm not going to have him turn into a mage. You can put that in the lore and just say he has the ability to transform himself into a, 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 a vulture or a mage. That's background lore. It doesn't matter for combat. So throw that out. Stick it as a spell effect if you want. But really, like to spend six lines, seven lines, an entire bonus, give it another bonus action for one. Give it something that can do as a bonus action. Give it shield, right? If it, can, if it turns into a mage, how come it doesn't have shield? 
shield. Probably because shield would be a pain in the ass since AC 25 at that point. But I might give it shield or I might give it some kind of counter spell because it does mage stuff, right? I think one of the things about Ember is it pretends to be a mage. So that's pretty cool. Legendary actions, three legendary actions. Pursuit moves 40 feet in a straight line or a creature can see and ignores opportunity attacks. Okay, so it can fly around and avoid OAs. Searing bite, two actions. Makes a bu- one bite attack if the attack hit to deals an additional seven. So it could do, this is kind of cool. It can, um, Ember can breathe, boom, hits people, 56 fire damage, DC 22 deck save, throws them back, sees who it threw back, then as a legendary flies over to one of the person that's prone without avoiding OAs and then on its next legendary action can bite that person with advantage doing a total of 26 plus 20 fire, 26 piercing and 20 fire, 46 points of damage on that bite attack. After that, that creature took 56 damage in fire damage from losing the prone. That's a fair bit. That's a, that's a, that's not, that's not bad. I would probably let it have claw attacks as a legendary action as well. And that would probably get its damage threshold up. This, the sly flourish official damage threshold for a CR 22 creature is 220 damage. I like to do seven damage. If a creature is up to CR 20, I do seven damage per CR. That's kind of my baseline of where I like to see a monster striking at. And if it's above CR or CR 20 and above, I do 10 times CR and 220. And again, an attack that hits multiple creatures counts as double. So 56 damage on the breath weapon is low, I think, because that's 112 points. Plus, let's say it does that bite attack. It's doing 46 plus 112. 46 plus 112 is 158. So 158 divided by 22. No, no, no. Is that right? Is 7.18? Is that right? So it's doing seven. That's not bad, right? You know, that's that's not bad. I was just saying, hang on. Is the regular bite attack doing more damage than the legendary searing bite? No. It makes a bite attack. And if the attack hits, it deals an additional seven fire. So it's doing fire additional fire damage on it so no it's it's definitely hitting so seven's not terrible seven is what it would be if it was below cr20 in mine so i'm and you know that's not bad and it, as you know i you have my full blessing my full authority to increase the damage on any of this stuff to make ember a threat i would certainly consider giving a counter spell and shield or counter spelly slash shieldy short of bonus actions give her the altar shape the calescent aura i would make that a fireball 28 damage boom and they've saved for half i would have it doing that every turn now you got a scary ember that's scary ember Lots of other monsters. I'm not going to go through. Forest Master, a cool kick-ass unicorn. I think is it. It is not. It's a non-legendary CR8 unicorn. You ever need a new unicorn? You've got a cool. You got a cool unicorn. Forsworn CR6, a kind of elementally sort of thing. Where they're like revenants. So you want a cool, lawful good undead. I think that's cool. Dragonlance says lawful good undead. Urda is a giant. A couple different Urdas. Never mind gnome inventors. You got these gnomes. I like this one that's got all the crazy Dr. Octopus arms. These are more like, are you going to fight these? Why do I have a giant ass stat block for these creatures you're probably not going to be fighting? But again, free. Why am I complaining? I'm, I shouldn't be complaining. Thanoi Hunter, Walrus Man. I think you should make a Walrus Man character stat block. That'd be popular. A new Draconian. So a new Draconian, you definitely use CR5. That's a good That's a good CR for it. I haven't dug into any of its stats or damage and anything like that. 14 slashing damage on two attacks. See, that's really good, right? So it does 28 and then has Flaming Carnage. Violent retaliation of a creature 10 feet of the dragon. Hits it with an attack. Draconian make one claw attack against that creature. So it's probably going to get this, right? So it's damage output, if we want to look at the damage output modifier. And this is why, like, why do low CR monsters do so much more damage per CR than high CR damage monsters? But this looks really high. 28 plus another 14 28 plus 14 whoops 8 plus 14 plus 4 is 46 
40, I don't have to do the math to figure out that this is a lot higher. Divide by five, 9.2 damage per turn. Per, I'm sorry, 9.2 damage per CR for the, for the Thrag Draconian. How come Ember's not doing 9.2, right? He's doing seven. Why is it, why is it, why is, why are high level monsters doing so less damage? And the reason why is because of those other abilities. The other abilities are weighted higher. Oh, but it can do all those other things. It can knock you prone, all this other stuff. Verminard is another one that I looked at because I was like, oh, this is cool. A high level CR 17 evil cleric badass right looks cool a lot of lore and dragonlance lore really the idea of verminard as a stat block is cool i just i just like having it i don't know if i'm ever gonna use verminard but really handy if you're gonna run a really high level cleric if you need a equivalent of a mage although boy the, the it, this is much higher than an archmage stat block but if you wanted like a high power mage what would you have so let's take a look at verminard again we just looked at one that had a 9.2 damage per challenge rating what's the challenge rating here 143 hit points come on that's less than 10 per cr i don't care if he's got ac 20 right that's really really low you want mine 170 what did i say seven times uh, 15 right so i say monsters hit points for monsters below cr 20 should be about 15 but 15 to 20 particularly legendary monsters should probably be have higher hit points because they're going to be the focus everyone's going for this guy every spell every magic item every single use thing everything they've got is going after this you're going to have smite on every attack against this guy because you hate named things. players hate named bad guys they hate guys that stand out they hate them and they will pour every ounce of every thing they've got onto them and monsters that are built to be targets like this should be built to be targets by withstanding that to hold up to their challenge rating i think you should have at least 200 and some hit points i would go with 240 right max 140 is ridiculous you're gonna get killed in two turns like vinard if he if he loses initiative he's dead right if he loses initiative is he down on dishes dead Draconic Command, when a dragon or creature within Draconic Trait within 30 feet of Vernar makes an attack roll, the creature makes a d4. So it gives Bless, Draconic Bless to everything around it, which is kind of pain in the ass because a lot of extra dice. Legendary Resistance, good deal. Special Equipment. This case, like, because it has Nightbringer and Nightbringer as a whole, there's a whole, like, block for Nightbringer. That's one where you probably say, okay, Nightbringer, mention the fact in the stat block that he has Nightbringer. So that's not bad. A legendary resistance, a Nightbringer wields Night, Nightbringer grants him dark vision, immunity to fire damage, charmed and frightened. So he can't be charmed, frightened, or take fire damage. Okay. So he can't be fireballed. Multi attack. Verminar makes two Nightbringer attacks and uses malediction. Nightbringer is 12 bludgeoning plus 10 radiant and can blind somebody. Eh, it's not a lot, right? That's pretty low. That's 22 points of damage. We just saw Draconian, Draconian doing like pretty close to that. Not a lot. Verminar utters an unholy word so malad and uses malediction. So it can do two attacks plus malediction. Verminar utters an unholy word causing profane fire to descend on one creature Verminar can see within 60 feet. DC 18 saving throw. 11 necrotic plus 11 radiant. 22. Eh, not bad. That's still pretty low, right? That's again, CR 17. Characters are going to be like level 12-ish. Yeah. Spellcasting has a bunch of spells. Anything special here? Bane, freedom, you know. These are all spells that you should say he has them. He's probably not going to be using them. Bonus action. Dragon Queen's favor. Verminard or one creature he can see within 60 feet magically regains 17 hit points. So the argument would be like, oh, look at this. This is why his hit points are so low because he can heal 17. A, you're burning his bonus action. And B, I have to remember that. And I forget that crap all the time. I always forget this stuff. So just give him, you know, it's the same thing. Like him healing him, A, players hate it. They hate to watch. If the loss aversion of monsters healing sucks, it makes sense for a troll. I would probably make this that it can do it to another creature and then give him the hit points he should have because I think he should totally have hit points. 
Verminard takes legendary three legendary actions. Tactical movement. He can move without provoking. It's funny that like everybody has that now. Fervent Strike makes one Nightbringer attack if the attack hits. This seems to be some other tech that they're using is the give them one attack but bump, bump up the damage to, to make up for it. But his damage output is way low. He can cast a spell for three actions but none of those are really that big a deal. His damage output is way low. Now, is he a damage guy or is he a commander, right? If we get into, oh, his role isn't to do damage. Yeah, then let him do damage anyway, because if he's not going to be doing it, then it's okay. In the Sly Flourish equation, he should be doing about 119 damage per round. And instead, what we see is he is doing 22 plus, uh, so he's doing 44 with his attacks. And I have the right two Nightbringer attacks. So that's 22 44 66 for his normal attacks and then he can do fervent strike which is another nightbringer attack so that's another so it's 88 plus 7 is 95 so he's doing 95 damage a turn around 5.58 so pretty low i would definitely up his damage if you gave him one extra nightbringer attack or you let him do malediction on multiple creatures. I would let him do that on three targets. So if he can do a couple of Nightbringer attacks plus malediction on three different targets at range, he can hit your back line, which is dangerous. It doesn't really, it increases his threat as a legendary monster, but it doesn't, you're not going to kill one dude because you only get to attack three different targets. But it means your mages and your backline, all the people that are hiding or in a way he can hit them with malediction doing 22 points of damage to each of them. That's not bad. You might even boost that up. Again, depending on the level they are, like so, you know, if I double that damage so that he's doing, you know, 4d10 or he's doing, you know, 40 damage instead of 22 damage on that stuff, I think he would be pretty effective. He would scare the hell out of your backline. But letting him so I would I would either let malediction attack multiple targets or I would boost their damage or both and give him a lot more hit points because he's just going to go down again. Oh, what good is that bonus action where he can heal if he takes 150 points of damage from two paladins and a barbarian in round, in round one? So, yeah. And that's it. So those are the monsters from Dragonlance Creatures. They don't feel as strong to me as the monsters that are in the actual Dragonlance book. I wish those monsters were, were beefed up. I wonder if... It's possible. Here's a, here's a theory. I don't know if this theory is true. I'm making this up. In Dragonlance, I think in the, I don't know if they talk about it in the book, but in the design videos, they mention the fact that the encounters in Dragonlance are harder. I wonder if the Dragonlance monsters are supposedly harder for their challenge rating than they typically are to make up for the fact that the characters are more powerful because they get like feats at first level and they get they get more feats. They get two extra feats, I think, for Dragonlance characters. So if they make the creatures harder, they do a little bit more damage. They're doing like Cobalt Press level damage, right? We, we looked at that last time. I wonder if the design of those monsters are beefed up and these guys didn't go through that process to make them more dangerous for the fact that the characters are. But does that mean that monsters overall are getting more dangerous for their challenge rating, according to Wizards, they're getting to where I think they should be, but not if you're getting four freaking feats at fourth level, you know, three up to up to two extra feats. Is that making up for it? I don't know. So that is the Monsters Compendium Volume 2. It's free. I'll say that. It's free. And they're not bad. And like, I'm, 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 I'm nitpicking because that's what I do. I nitpick about, about these kinds of things. These are my little bugaboos, right? Not enough damage, not enough hit points. Very common for legendary monsters. In my opinion, almost all of them have this problem. Many of them have this problem. And I like to offer solutions. And the solutions are you give it an extra attack. 
right? Pretty straightforward. Give them extra attacks, up the damage, up the hit points. Very easy to do. And then they can be a threat. And also you can keep your hands on those dials and you can decide like uh, given my players, given their capabilities, given what's going on, given the, the, the feeling that I want this battle to have, should I tweak these numbers a little bit? Go ahead and tweak them. It's okay. But it's free. Right, you get free stuff. You get Verminard, you get Ember. That's kind of cool. So, so good things. I dig it. I'm I'm happy with that. I don't typically preview Arcadia from MCDM on this show. I am a subscriber. I am a big fan of it. I think Arcadia, Arcadia is MCDM's monthly D and D related magazine that they run on the MCDM Patreon. I will link. I'm linking to all this. I'm linking to the MCDM Patreon below. I love MCDM. I have two articles that I've written for MCDM. I don't typically spotlight them on the show, and the reason why is I don't think they need my help. I think that Arcadia is already very popular, and MCDM has a far bigger Matt Colville, of course, has a far bigger platform than I do. They don't really need me to pitch it, so I try to pitch things for things that you aren't going to hear about a lot on YouTube already. But there was one article in this most recent Arcadia Volume 2 that I thought, first of all, the artwork, let me talk just a little bit about, about Arcadia. Our, Arcadia is on the order of like a 24 to 36 page PDF online magazine, fantastic art, fantastic editing, fantastic design. They go through a huge, probably the best playtesting regiment that I've seen for almost any company, maybe even first or third party. I'm not sure because we don't know exactly how Wizards does their playtesting. They go through a very strong playtesting segment and the magazine is excellent. It usually has about three to four art. I think it's usually about three articles per issue and you can subscribe to the MCDM Patreon for 10 bucks and 10 bucks gets you back access to all the previous issues that they've done 22 previous issues and then every month you get a new one it's a fantastic service i i i do get a review copy but i also pay for the a patreon i'm 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 one of the legacy that got it for five bucks and i'm keeping that legacy and so i do support it with my own money but i do get preview copies and this is i think this was last month's issue and there was one they're all all the articles are really excellent all the stuff that's in here is really cool but this one really caught my attention i said this is something i'd like to talk about on the show because this is a really neat idea and the idea here is this concept that will doyle will doyle is a fantastic DD designer he has written for a bunch of the hardcover books he did curse of strad wrote a bunch of curse of strad he wrote a bunch of tomb of annihilation will doyle and his partner also wrote what's it called wild beyond the witch light so a lot of chops for will doyle very very smart i had the honor of meeting him a couple of times i got stuck in a airport with him one time we we're both waiting for flights and I got to sit and chat with him for a long time. Really, really good dude and excellent designer. And he wrote this article that's a really interesting take on D&D and 5e overall called Heroic Champions. The idea of Heroic Champions is what if you wanted to play a one-on-one D&D game? But instead of having like a normal character with maybe a sidekick and then dramatically reducing the amount of monsters that they would battle when they're going through it, what if you built a different kind of heroic character that could stand for a group of four regular D&D characters. So they, in the old days, they used to call this a, like a, a gestalt character, like a character where you mash together multiple character options into one character. And you would, instead of having like a subclass, you might have multiple subclasses and stuff. So they used to do this in the third edition days and stuff like that. In this case, it's like, how do you build one character that's got enough stuff to handle a group? And I was immediately like, wow, that's really cool. And the idea is not only are you telling a one-on-one tale, first of all, one-on-one D&D is something I think is very underserved and underused. I think that more of us should be running more one-on-one D&D games. 
because it helps in so many ways. You can build a story around one character. The whole story of a campaign can be built around the background of one character. You can draw in all their personal connections. You can draw on their background because you don't have to worry about three or four other characters that you also have to do this with. It's one character. I've done it for my, my wife and I have played one-on-one D&D games. It was great. I did a one-on-one game with Enrique. You can see a video for that. I did a whole video series where we ran through Dragon of Icepire Peak with Enrique and I one-on-one. Fantastic. Really, really fun. That gives you a good example of what it can look like and how fun it can be. So I love one-on-one D&D. I think it is underserved. It helps you with scheduling. It's much easier to schedule. The games are faster, so you can get a lot more done in a shorter amount of time. There's so many advantages to one-on-one D&D that I really think are underserved. So I'm really excited to see this. I don't know if this will go to faster, but all the other benefits are there. You can focus on the character. Scheduling is easier. All that kind of stuff. So the idea that, that Will points out here is what if you built out a character that had all of these features? And in this sense, it is a totally different character class called a heroic class and the heroic class has certain features that let it stand on its own as almost as though it were a group of characters so you get heroic exploits you learn to perform three special stunts that allow you to take special actions or gain unique advantages sometimes during your turn sometimes on other creatures turns so you get to act more often that's a big one is how do you take enough actions to account for the fact that you're one character that's acting at four this heroic exploits is a way to do that Exploits are chosen from the list available to your heroic class and require no action to perform. You can use the same heroic exploit more than once during a round, and you can use more than one exploit per per turn. Again, keeping up that action economy. Can't use the same exploit more than once in the same turn, yours or another's. You can't use the heroic exploits while incapacitated, surprised, or otherwise unable. Cool. Heroic recovery. You're able to draw on reserves of stamina, determination, supernatural to, pa- to heal yourself and shrug off debilitating con- conditions. At any point during your turn, no action required. You can regain hit points equal to your con score, not your modifier, plus five times your heroic class level. That's a lot of hit points. In addition, you can end any of the following conditions. Blinded, deafened, incapacitated, paralyzed, petrified, poisoned. Once you use this feature, you must finish a shorter long rest before you can do it again. So heroic recovery is like an instantaneous drop all of the status effects that are on you and heal, but you can only do so once every short rest. Two times that rest at 6th level, three times at 13th. Interesting that these are just slightly above the tiers. So you get a 6th level instead of 5th. That's interesting. Heroic Fortune, you're blessed with an uncanny ability to escape harm. When you fail a saving throw or hit by an attack, you can re-roll the save and take, and, or force the attack that hits you to be rolled again. Then choose either roll, potentially changing the outcome. Additionally, you recover. You can use this three times, but you can only use it once on a specific thing when you finish a lord, shorter long rest. So you can shrug off a lot. You can, you can say, nope, you didn't hit me. You can also say, no, I don't want to fail that save. That with heroic recovery means you can take a lot of things hitting you because you're going to be the target. Remember, I was just talking about Verminard is going to be the bullseye. Well, you're going to be the bullseye of every monster. So you need a lot of, a lot of stuff like this. Ability score improvements. Not only do you get normal ability score improvements, when you reach fourth level, you, you get, and again at eighth, 12th, 16th, and 19th, you can increase one ability score of your choice by two, a full point up. Or you can increase two ability scores. I, I guess that that is... So you're not using the normal class stuff. So that is... That, that's period. Hit points and healing. Carefully utilizing... Uh, utilizing. Uh, the word utilize bugs me. Just say use. Carefully using your heroic exploits, heroic fortune, and heroic recovery features during combat can help your character evade attacks and minimize damage. As an additional counter to being the sole focus of the enemy attacks, telling you why, heroic characters are gifted with greater reserves of hit points. At first level, your character has two hit dice with the type determined by your class. You start with hit points equal to the sum of the highest roll of both dice plus your con score. So you get a lot, level one, lot of hit points. Each time you advance a new level, you gain two additional hit dice and your hit point maximum increases by an amount equal to the highest roll of both dice plus your con score. So you got hit dice, but they're maximized the whole way. Lot of hit points. 
and you get a bunch of gold. So there are three different character archetypes. It doesn't seem like they have a dedicated cleric one. Instead, they have a spellcaster one that looks like it's going to combine it. But all of the all of the information that you need here to level up this character is built into these things. And the idea is like you're Conan, right? You're Conan the Barbarian. Conan is off on his own and he's fighting everything on his own, right? He's out there. Think about those old like Frazetta paintings of Conan, right? Heroic spellcaster. So you can see all the different stuff. What I'm really interested in is I would love to hear what the playtesting of this was like and how it worked out. I haven't run it yet. And will I? I'm not sure. It's do I want to run this or do I want to run the old way of a reduced game? I'm not sure. But this is a really cool idea. And if somebody wanted to play sort of a high power one on one game, if you wanted to run like a hardback adventure, the really advantage of this is think about how this opens up. You, all of your books that you've got. You want to run Dragonlance, but you're like, I don't really have a group for Dragonlance. Do you have one friend who wants to play? And you're like, guess what? You're the hero of Kryn. Pick one of these, use these things, and you can run through that entire adventure with one player and one DM, one character, and run it as a group of four. I think it's a really fantastic idea. I, I'm, I'm eager to hear how people use this and how it works because it sounds like it could be really, really, a really strong, a really strong idea. I love that there's like good DM, good DM tips here. So really, really, really neat things. So check that out. That is an Arcadia issue 22. You can pick up Arcadia issue 22 individually if you don't want to subscribe to the Patreon for any reason, or if you jump into the MCDM Patreon, you can get all of the issues of Arcadia plus all of the future issues. Excellent stuff. Really, really cool. Check that out. I am a huge fan of Raging Swan Press's products. Raging Swan makes really, really excellent random, often focused on random tables for firing off your imagination to fill out your adventures, to fill out your locations, to fill out all kinds of stuff. I have a whole pile of, man, I do it. It's like 12 books. I've got a whole bunch of Raging Swan books over on my bookshelf that I, I love and adore. I have talked about most recently the Dread Thingonomicon this giant, I'm going to throw my back out picking it up. This huge book. I did a spotlight on this one before. You can check that out in previous previous episodes of that show. I can't even get it back on the bookshelf. My shoulder went out. So really, really cool book. So the fine folks at Raging Swan sent me a preview copy and a review copy of the GM's Miscellany, Miscellany? The GM's Miscellany Dungeon Dressing for fifth edition. You can tell the, the ones that have their, that are, that are tied to a specific version of the game by the color of the cover in this case a red cover is for 5e big book 270 pages black and white black and white printing on the inside if you get the print on demand version from drive through rpg i think these are books first of all these are books that are going to last you forever these books even though this is a fifth edition based book there is a gm's miscellany that is not 5e based so if you are specifically looking for a book that will last with any version of the game you can take a look at that one that one will have a black cover instead of the red cover but this one has specific magic items and specific things in it that are focused around fifth edition but not a ton not not piles of it so most of this book is going to work with any version of DD or any fantasy rpg in much the same way that the other ones did but it is definitely definitely has a fifth edition focus but what i really like is when you get the print version of these books and how much is the print version print version of the book is 30 bucks in soft cover or 40 bucks in hardcover that includes the pdf pretty reasonably priced for a good size book like that print on demand prices have gone up a lot so we're starting to see a lot of print on demand books that are higher priced than we normally are used to but probably still useful Again, if you are building out your RPG library, having a copy of a book like this on your shelf is something that, you know, you could definitely use as the versions of the game are changing, as things go in the future. There's a lot of material in here that you can use. If you are 
If you want to be truly future-proof, and if you want to get it for a little less money, you can get the system-neutral version of Dungeon Dressing. It is a smaller book. It's 216 pages to 250 pages, but has all a lot of the same material that's in this one. And that one is definitely useful for the future. So if you're interested in that kind of GM miscellany Dungeon Dressing book, do I have that too? I do. I have the soft cover version of that. Told you I have all these books. So a lot of the same material. If you already own this one, you probably don't need to get the 5e one. I don't I don't necessarily think that I would get the 5e one. I don't think there's a, enough 5e material in it to warrant buying it again. But if you are strictly a 5th edition DM, if you're running 5th edition games and you're picking up either of them, the 5th edition version is something I would definitely pick up. Let's take a look at the table of contents. Nice forward that talks about what are the value of these kinds of books? What do they bring to you? How do they shake up your mind? Random tables, the right focus and the right lens of random tables can do a whole lot. I've seen, and, and knowing what that lens and focus is, is really tricky. I've talked about that on the, on the show before, that sometimes you get tables that are just too narrow. Like oh, I'm, I'm, I'm nitpicking about like every single object on a desk. I don't have time for that. And then other ones are like, let's talk about your world. And that's a little too vague. So you want to find the right balance of the focus of a random table. Is it big enough to matter that it's worth me spending the time to roll on it, but not so big that it's too general and it doesn't really help me? That's that figuring that out is hard. Lots of good information, lots of lots of good advice. I really love the art. The artwork is fantastic. The artwork is like this old school black and white line art. Really, really cool. Makes you makes you feel like you're playing a game that's 50 years old. Instead of the, the modern aesthetic is really cool too. I'm very happy. Like the Dragonlance book looks great, but it's you know kind of fun to see that old black and white stuff. So you can see here all the different kinds of dungeon dressing, altars, archways, bridges, captives, ceilings, all the stuff that you might find in a dungeon. What are the different things that you can roll on? Tons and tons of different random tables. Most of this stuff is the stuff that you find in the, the system neutral one as well. But then it's when you get into these things like tricks and traps and other things that have statistics to them where there's a focus, where there's a focus on 5e. More stuff on dungeon dressing, doors, stairs, tables tricks wandering monsters we're gonna probably jump into that because i think that's where you see some of the fifth edition stuff and you know here are examples let's see this is the wandering what are they doing that's really good what action are they taking you know this is th these are the kinds of tables that we don't have enough of this is actually something i saw in the Spelljammer book too the the attitude of the people that are coming to you and how that attitude can change is really interesting but what are the different monsters or different groups that are doing what are they doing here that is a that is a really good way a good way to shake it up so here we can see that they have the names of like intellect devourer, doppelgangers, other, you know, gelatinous cubes. These are definitely straight fifth edition monsters, but you can see like it doesn't have the whole stat block. It's just mentioning the monster name again, giving it a lot of universal, universal use. I think where I definitely saw fifth edition specific stuff is in traps and things like that. So the DCs, when, whenever they have DCs for things, those DCs are fifth edition based DCs. That's definitely something something you know so look at that art isn't that art really cool really great stuff treasures the treasures have fifth edition based treasures in here stone of good luck eyes of the eagles slippers of spider climbing lots of stuff like this again dc checks that are based on fifth edition so that's the kind of level of fifth edition sort of stuff you're going to see in here but the bulk of it is going to be pretty universal stuff which i think is fine i, I when i would pick up a book like this i wouldn't pick it up for lots of detailed mechanics on fifth edition stuff you want that you get cobalt press you get like monster books or treasure books from cobalt press they're going to really cover this this one is really about filling out your ideas for your dungeons with lots of different details and just happens to have fifth edition based stuff i love these treasure hordes so there's a whole set of treasure hordes that you don't have to 
go roll up an entire treasure set from the dungeon master's guide. Instead, you can just pick a horde. You, you roll, you roll a roll and it will tell you what it has in it. And it has the gold and everything already lined up. Very, very handy for fifth edition treasure hordes. You know, the likelihood, A, if you were to drop one of these multiple times in different groups, I don't think anybody would care. Otherwise, if you're running it for Europe, you can just scratch that one off. And you can say, oh, that treasure hoard is done. What is the challenge rating? So these are challenge rating five to 10 hordes. So, oh, this is cool. So they have hordes, 20 different hordes for each tier. So that's lots of different hordes for lots of different tiers. This is all based on the Dungeon Master Guide math. Really, really handy stuff. Like this is good, lazy DM stuff. You want a treasure hoard that has a lot of detail in it, but you don't feel like rolling a million times. This is perfect. I think this is a this is a fantastic addition to, and a good reason that if you were running fifth edition games, the treasure hoards alone are probably a good reason to pick up the fifth edition version of the Dungeon Miscellany to the general one. So that, you know, that was something I remember when I was when I was flipping through this. That caught my eye. And it, the fact that it's got 20 different treasure hordes for 20 different ones. In the back, we have a bunch of maps. These are Dyson logo. It looks like, I, I think there's just the one map that sort of dropped in there. Like, hey, you need a map? We got a page, page to fill out. We'll drop in a Dyson map. So Dyson definitely has just some of the maps in there. Thoughts about dungeon design. Again, these are more universal. Again, we have some Dyson maps that are thrown in here that can help give you some ideas. Really, really good stuff. So I love Raging Swan stuff. I love their books. This one is, you know, big, meaty book, ready to fill out your dungeons with all kinds of stuff. If you are a fifth edition DM and you do not have any of these books, I would definitely pick up the fifth edition GM's Miscellany for Dungeon Dressing. Fantastic book. Really good to pick up. If you play in other worlds than fifth edition, if you're doing other fantasy RPGs, you can pick up the original. It's a little bit cheaper, but if you want things like that, treasure hordes, you know, it's an extra 30, 40 pages worth of material that's in this book. You want to pick up the fifth edition one. And even as we look at like one D&D and what's happening, I don't think there's hardly anything in here that's going to be completely like obsolete when one D&D comes out. I think that books like these have an amazing shelf life. And I think you could use it forever. That is Raging Swans GM Miscellany Dungeon Dressing. You can find a link to the show notes. You can find a link to pick up the book from DriveThruRPG in the show notes below. It's interesting. There's a lot of talk. We were just talking in the Twitch chat here about the value of random tables for firing up a GM's imagination. And there's been some talk about text-based artificial intelligence systems that are that are getting out there. I forget what they're called. Somebody open chat G. BT or something like that. Somebody in the chat remind me what these new artificial intelligence chat GPT. Yes. Make me a random treasure hoard. I'll probably look into these more, but really when you look at these AI based things, both for, for visual you know, creating images of stuff or for creating text from a DMS perspective, these are really just very fancy random generators that underneath AI, when you dig real far down into what an AI is, it's a whole bunch of little linear regression or different regression algorithms chained together into giant networks that nobody can understand understand that nobody understands how they how they managed to get to where they got to but they're tiny little random random tables but the reality is that they do the same they can do a lot of the same purpose so first of all if you think you're missing the boat because you're not using something like chat gpt books like this are kind of that right we roll on tables we get ideas the ideas give us things that we want to drop into our game they fuel our imagination the ai ones are a little bit fancier and they can come up with some pretty wild stuff but they're essentially just fancy random generators that sound more natural in the end and the value of that stuff to dms is really really good cuz it pushes our brains out of the troughs that we're we're in we we are, we are embedded in our little lanes and we don't off our, our, it's hard for us to break out of these ideas it means we come up with stereotypical ideas we come up with boring ideas that have been done 50 times we come up with lots of stuff. When we take random tables like this 
and we shake up our brains with them to come up. Oh, wow. I didn't even think about it. That's a really cool idea. What if it was this other thing? We can come up with a lot of different ones. And so I think both random tables that we see in books like this from the Lazy DM's Companion and these other ones, especially when you have ones where you can combine multiple tables together, it gives you this multiple capability. If you have a D20 table, that's great. That's 20. But if you have a second D20 table and you combine the two, now you got 400. If you have a third, 8,000. They explain the options keep multiplying out. You get really powerful stuff. That's where you can get a table. A single page that has five interlinked tables, maybe some that you can roll multiple times that can have millions of combinations of abilities off of one sheet. It's really powerful. I think a lot of the AI stuff can help in that regard too. There's questions about what else that is going to do for us, right? How else is that going to change society and stuff like that? I'm always like, ah, eh, we'll see. We'll see what it does. I don't think I don't think like artists are going to be completely out of commission. I think there is a question of like when you're using AI art versus when you're using physical art. There's a lot of question of like what did they seed it with and are they seeding it on my art? How do I know? Right? There's a lot of questions like that. But, you know, from a DM's perspective, very valuable tools, I think. Let's do some Patreon questions. Every month on the Sly Flourish Patreon, patrons can ask a D&D related question. I, I answer every question on the thread, but I also talk about them here on this show. Some, some of them I talk about here on this show. Some of them I will turn into larger articles or videos if it's a topic that I think is really a good one to expand upon. Tim S. says, what are your tips for running high level 20th level one shots? I'm not so concerned about players being powerful, but players not knowing their characters and abilities, analysis paralysis and combat turns taking too long. Theirs and mine. That the game becomes a drag instead of fun. If you are running a 20th level game, you are asking for some of these problems. I love the 20th level can be really fun. I one of, I think maybe my favorite D&D game of all time was a 20th level one shot that one James Intercastle ran for myself and a bunch of friends of ours running his adventure Invasion from the Planet of Tarasks in which you fight multiple Tarasks, including a one spot spoiler f facing maybe 100, 100 Tarasks and an Archmage fun, really cool. But you have to be prepared to run that kind of stuff. So a few tips. So one is accept the fact that it's going to be long and hard and you're going to face some of these things. Analysis paralysis, going to happen. Combat turns, taking too long, going to happen. Prepare for that. Do not expect that, oh, we're going to be able to pack this into a four-hour session. I might tell them, hey, we're going to do one or two, like plan a four-hour game, but say like it might take a session or two to do it. Maybe don't make it just a one-shot. If you're going to do a one-shot, consider focusing it around one single big battle. Build your story in there, build some fun exploration, build some character hooks, have some role-playing opportunities, but pack it into a battle. Roll initiative from the beginning, let it take the entire session, and have multiple events that are taking place during that battle so that you're off to that you know, so that you can pack it all into that one session. A couple things that you can do. One is tell them to stick to player's handbook only. Don't let them pick options from other, other books and other classes. Say it must be options from the player's handbook. Again, if they're using D&D Beyond, be really careful because D&D Beyond gives you every option and doesn't tell you where they came from. So all of a sudden you have strict saving backgrounds in your Forgotten Realms game. It's happened. It's happened to a lot of people. Or you get feats from weird-ass places. So you might say the material has to be from the player's handbook. Have to be core classes from the player's handbook. You can limit their subclasses. Say that you can only play things like the champion or the life cleric. Right? Pick there, every one of the subclasses. Every one of the classes has a default subclass that is easier to use. That's designed to be simpler in play. 
choose just those subclasses or tell ask the players to pick only those subclasses. The other thing you can do is limit feats. Either don't let them choose feats and only have them use ability score improvements or again, just picking feats that are from the player's handbook. If you reduce and say there are no feats, that's really limiting the characters. A lot of players are going to be like, why is it so boring? But it'll make simple characters that are easy to run. So that's that's an option. No multi-classing. Do not let them multi-class. Say that they have to t- stick to one core class. Those, sim- those simplifications, A, will reduce their power. Absolutely. It reduces the power of the character. But it reduces also analysis paralysis, characters not knowing their abilities, all these things that you bring up. Cut those out. And if you cut those out, you can still have a 20th level game and explain to them why. It's saying like, in order to keep this kind of fast and f- focused and fun, we're going we're gonna to stick to these things. But those are the default rules. The default rules are no feats, no multi-class and player's handbook. Like that's what the player's handbook expects you to choose. Feats and multi-classing are optional rules that we stack on. Just everybody's used to using them. And at 20th level, you're like, oh man, I'm boosting up ability scores that don't matter worth a lick. You could also limit certain feats if you wanted to. The, pick the complicated feats like your polearm master. Say, you know, come up with your sub list of feats, toughness, and, you know, pick, pick the feats that are straightforward. Say, these feats you could choose from. The, the ones that are always on, always fired up, and you don't have to pay attention to them. But the ones, you know, the ones that have lots of nitpicky bits, pull those out. Those, that's an option as well. So those are my, those are the tips that I offer 20th level game. The big one is accept the fact that you're running a 20th level game and the kinds of things you're talking about are the kinds of things that happen in 20th level games. You know, so that's, that's really, that's really tough. Kirk T says campaign hook versus spiral campaign model in sandbox West marches style game. I'm working on a sandbox West marches style game with an emphasis on the exploration pillar. While there'll be several possible villains and fronts, the goal is for the players to discover them as the exploration spirals out from the home base. I don't care which villains or fronts they discover or trigger. That all depends on the directions the exploration takes and I'll, I'll flesh them out as they discover them. When discussing campaign hooks, return to the lazy dungeon master suggests an epic story arc and stresses the value of the player's no up front what the arc is example stop thurun's rise how do we reconcile this with spiral campaign development in a west marches style game excellent question first of all thank you for reading the return of lazy dungeon master and picking that out and recognizing that that's in there and the the answer is like you don't necessarily have to have a theme like that that those themes are built for more kind of straightforward campaigns less west marches style campaigns but instead of having like a central goal like that kill strahd or defeat you know stop tiamat's rise or whatever you can think about the theme that you have for your West Marches style game and focus on that theme. Is the theme that it's relatively agrarian farmer types that are sitting upon ancient dungeons that they don't even know anything about? Is it in the middle of a war? Is there a great war that's going on in the area? What are the events that set the stage for the entire area of your West Marches style game? Make that that central theme and think about how that central theme affects everything else. I think even if I'm not, a, I don't run West Marches style games. So I, I, I'm not an expert at all in West Marches style games. I know about them. I've read about them, but I've never run them. I've never played in them really. So they're a different style of D&D and it's definitely everything in Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master is optional. Right? Every idea is only if it, if it, you use what works and throw away a doesn't. So if that doesn't work, if that idea of the theme doesn't work for West Marches, you don't have to do it. I will say though that I know if I were running or playing a West Marches style game, I would want to have some kind of theme or some kind of event, something to show me that the world is a living place and is moving on. If the world is too static, if nothing is really happening, then it's going to feel very dry, I think. It can feel very dry. So I think you still want something going on. It could be a darkness rises to the east. It could be, you know, rumors are that the Lich King of of Aragafat is rising from the temples of the west, you know? 
things could still be going on that are affecting it. If you think about like Ghost of Saltmarsh, you could run a West Marsh's style game in Ghost of Saltmarsh very easily. You could, you know, that 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 you have Saltmarsh, the, the village of Saltmarsh, the town of Saltmarsh as your central home base, and then things both in the water and things out in the in the land and the forests and everything else, and the characters could go to it. That book is actually really good for that style of game. But you still have a big political pressure cooker going on there you still have the king is applying pressure to the town that the town doesn't like and that the independent groups of the town aren't like and by the way there seems to be some unknown force that is causing pressure there you can still have that theme and even though it's a west marches style game these events could be still growing in the background so i wouldn't throw away the idea of not having that central theme or that story arc up front instead i would i would make the theme I might pull back on it being like the central goal, like kill Strahd, or, you know, but you might still have a theme that you're thinking about and make that that focus. And then think about how all of the events that are going on and, and, and you're going to learn this while it's going on with the players too. How do the actions of the players kind of feed into this? But I think too much of the, it's just a standard village and you go off and you explore dungeons. I think that could get pretty boring pretty fast. My, my feeling is it seems really cool and it seems very old school and it seems like a neat way to go. And there's many aspects of West Marches I like. But if the world is too static, I think it's going to be kind of boring. So I think that that theme can help keep the world dynamic, even if you're running a very open-ended game. Brett M says, I am considering adding minions and mobs to a campaign that I'm currently running. We just finished a session where the combat turned into a bit of a slog and I'm worried that adding, trying to add minions may just bog the combat down even further any thoughts on how to implement this i've seen you running large numbers and monsters of the monsters in the lazy uh, lazy workbook but i'm still concerned this adds a level of complexity that will stall out a session so it's a good you know good good question the whole point of running minions is that they won't stall down a session and that you can run dozens to hundreds of monsters as fast and sometimes faster than running typical monsters. You mentioned the Lazy DM workbook. The Lazy DM's companion has a more filled out section on how to run minions. The idea of using hordes of monsters is something I've been spending a lot of time thinking about and my views on it, they change. I kind of try different things. I've tried a bunch of different ones and I think you can think about all of these different options as modules for how to run minions. There's a bunch of different ways you can run them and you can look at them and say, are there specific ways that work for the style of minions I want to run? The Lazy DM's Companion has a few of these options. So you can find a few of these options under the Running Hordes section of the Lazy DM's Companion. One page that talks about running hordes. But you really want to think about it as specific things that you want to drop in. And there's a few different ones that you want to consider. A, how do you track hit points of the monsters, of the mob? If you have a bit of horde, how are you going to manage hit points? That's one question. How are you going to manage their attacks? How do you manage how many of them get hit by stuff? That is another thing that you want to talk about. How are you going to handle areas of effect, areas of effect that, that they are getting hit by? How are the things you're going to deal with that? And each of them have different ways that you can consider dropping into your to your game. So the ways that I operate that I offer in running hordes is in, in the section of the companion is that you can pool damage. So as a horde takes damage, you track that damage up. And every time that damage equals the hit points that a monster has, that monster is thrown out. And if the damage is more than two or three or four monsters, you pull two, three or four monsters out. You can either roll over the damage and keep the tally or you can just reset it after every monster kill that is certainly one way to do it there's another interesting way to do this that mcdm has done in their horde rules when they look at flea mortals their monster book which is the idea that the hit points of a monster is a damage threshold 
So you could have it that any time a monster is hit with an attack, that monster is dead. Anytime that monster fails a saving throw, it is dead. They're super fast. Anytime that monster takes damage that is greater than its hit points by any source, whether it lost an attack roll, it also dies. And that gives it a threat, a damage threshold. That means you can't peg them off with magic missiles or doing one point of damage wipes out entire hordes because it did one point. It has to reach over that threshold. The advantage of that is you don't have to track damage at all. It's only did the, did the attack do enough damage. So that's a way to do it too. The pooling damage is pretty straightforward too. I've run pooling damage with hundreds of monsters and you can still do that too. It's very quick. It does require a little bit of math and does require hit point tracking. So the, the minion idea of if they take if an attack hits a target and it dies you can pull it off the table if it fails a saving throw it dies you pull it off the table if it takes damage from any source that's greater than its amount of hit points it dies but if it takes damage from less of a source you don't track it at all it's as though it took no damage or you just say it took damage but you don't really track it that's not a bad way to go either that's all in how to handle damage how much damage you take then there's the how do you handle attacks there's a few different ways to do this too the 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 method that i recommend is one quarter of attacks succeed so if you're getting attacked by eight skeletons two of them are going to hit you and they do their damage that is super fast no rolling very easy to do there's always players sometimes bristle because like you didn't even roll an attack you just set it to damage to me but it's really fast so if you explain to them it's making the assumption that your armor class is 15 higher than their attack bonus, which is pretty good. So most people are going to get the benefit of it. There's a few where it'll be higher, but even still, the likelihood that it goes from two to one is 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 not really high. That it would go from a quarter to like an eighth or a fifth or whatever. But you can you can change that. You know, you can round it up or down depending on circumstances. If you feel like the character that got attacked really is vulnerable to attacks, you might have it to half instead of a quarter. Another way to do it, and I offer this in the book, is that you can essentially have the take the amount of damage that all of the monsters would do. So if you have eight skeletons and they're all attacking at once and they would do five damage each, that's 40 damage. And you split that damage up into a quarter and a half. So you have the damage, you, you quarter the damage, right? So in this case, what I say, 40, so it'd be 10. And you roll two attack rolls. Each attack roll does one quarter of the damage of the total amount. If both attacks hit, they take half. If one attack hits, they take a quarter. If neither attack hits, they take zero. So, And you can scale that up. If it's 200 dudes, you can still break it up and say, well, 200 guys doing this much damage, this is how it's going to split up. No one's going to get attacked by 200. If you're getting attacked by 200 guys, you're going to get killed. But that's a way to do it too. The adjudicating areas of effect, you can think of that like the damage threshold as well. If the area of effect does enough damage that it covers the hit points of the monster, just have them die. You could also roll say saving throws and if, if, if the damage a lot of times like if you're throwing like a fireball on a bunch of skeletons even if they make their save they're still dead you can just remove them all from the area of effect so lots of different ways to handle it the companion talks about it but there's also these ideas mcdm is handling it with minions so there's a lot of different ways that you can that you can handle this handle this idea but the intent is to is to pick pick ones that are that are the easiest and the fastest so they don't bog down the game the only big recommendation is tell your players how it works before you start the battle make sure they understand how you're doing it and why you're doing it so they recognize oh yeah this is us and and explain that the whole reason you're doing this is this cinematic crazy john wick style 40 guys are attacking me at once it's the the house of blue leaves scene from kill bill right one character facing 88 you know assassins there, there weren't actually 88 of them you know they're fighting all these assassins you want that like quick one sweep kills three guys that's the other thing is if you a character attacks somebody 
and does enough damage to kill that person, the damage carries over to the next and then the next. So you can sweep through. I think both the MCD Emeralds and mine talk about how creatures, that, that melee characters can sweep through and kill two or three creatures at a time in minion rules. The whole point is to make these really big cinematic battles. So whatever rules you can apply that make that cinematic battle feel cinematic is really good. Last thing I'll offer is a lot of times people get caught on a grid. If you're running it on a grid, you're like, oh my God, I got to move 20 skeletons onto the grid. Don't do that. Just draw a circle, use some kind of tool or describe it. Hey, by the way, on, on, in addition to these big skeletal veterans that you're fighting, there is also 50 other skeletons in this room and they're all attacking you as well. And just treat it like area damage, but then say, oh, if they cast turn undead, all those guys are wiped out. So the whole key is remember that minions are meant to be destroyed. So lean in towards destroying them. They're, they're meant to harass and destroy and be a fun way for the characters to really cleave down a lot of guys. That's what you're focused on. There are links. I'm going to offer a couple of different links to things about running minions down in the show notes below because it is something that I think is actually really important. I think having a good way to run dozens to hundreds of monsters in a D&D battle is one of the things that makes D&D feel really cool. And we miss out on that if we don't have some kind of horde rules. So check out the links in the show notes below. Brett, great question. Thank you for that. My friends, I want to thank you today for hanging hanging out with me while we talked about all things D&D. If you enjoyed this show and you want more stuff like this, subscribe to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You get an adventure generator PDF with all the stuff you need in order to run your own first level adventures, including a single page front and back simple fifth edition guideline that you can use to build characters and run D&D games all in a very small, I think it's three pages front and back, can run D&D games for a long time. Check that out by subscribing to the Sly Flourish newsletter. You also get a weekly D&D related article sent to your inbox. Link for that is in the show notes below. You can become a patron of Sly Flourish. Patrons get access to all kinds of tools, tips, tricks, dedicated adventures, the City of Arches sourcebook, dedicated Discord channels, the monthly Q&A, lots of different things that patrons get. It's a very low price. You can subscribe to that in the show notes below, or you can pick up any of my books, including the Lazy DM's Companion, which you just saw, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, the Lazy DM Worksbook, all in beautiful print versions available directly from my store. The link for that is in the show notes below as well. Thank you all very much. Have a great day and get out there and play some D&D.